The usual uncertainty over budget negotiations coupled with the debt ceiling brinksmanship means contractors should be highly prepared. This as federal spending continues to set records. We get one view of the situation from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And yeah, the uh, brinkmanship, even, you know, some of the major newspapers are starting to say, hmm, give us your view of how the debt ceiling crisis could affect contracting. Tom, I think that this debt ceiling crisis is going to have a more immediate impact on contractors than many people think. And it's going to have more immediate impact on government agencies than many people think. And that is because agencies have to plan as if their operations will be affected. I think we talked previously about continuity of operations, and that's certainly something that is increasingly a focus the closer we get to a purported deadline on when we will reach the debt ceiling as a country and what that might mean in case we don't have a deal in place to fix that. So I think if you're a government contractor, you want to anticipate a slowdown in business. You also want to anticipate whether or not you might get paid on projects, at least paid in a timely manner if there is a debt default. I think, Tom, like many crises in government, this one is going to last right up until the last possible minute. We saw the House Republicans come out last week with the first salvo in what they think a deal might want to look like. And it's important to understand that that just really is the first salvo. It's kind of like if you're in the football game, that's the first drive of the game after the kickoff. And, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And even if it put points on the board, it's usually not going to be the final points in the game. So there's going to be other plans, uh, we hope. We hope there will be other proposals. Right now, the administration and others that are involved in these discussions haven't really come up with a counterproposal yet. Maybe we'll see some of that this week. So far, the counterproposal has just been no cuts. Well, I think everybody understands that a debt ceiling extension that comes with no cuts in any sort of domestic spending is as much of a non-starter as perhaps portions of the plan unveiled last week by House Republicans. Right. Then with the debt ceiling actually looming, the government will have to pay itself, its employees, and those obligations first. Contracting obligations would be second in line if they thought they really had to stop spending in a dramatic way. It's almost like throwing a monkey wrench into an operating engine. You can get it to stop quickly, but you can't get it going again that fast. That's exactly right. That's a really good analogy. So what happens to the extent that we know, because remember, we've never actually had a debt ceiling default before, but mandatory spending, that is spending for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things of that nature, that will continue. And that's a lot of spending. But that means there are fewer dollars left over for so-called discretionary spending. Those are the dollars that go to pay government contractors for work performed. And even inside there, Tom, there will be a hierarchy. All of the things that are deemed imperative to support national security, they will most likely get a higher priority for payment than more routine acquisitions of commercial items and services. Now, if you're a small business listening to this and you think, hey, that could affect my ability to get paid on time, you're probably right, unless you're performing on one of the intelligence community or high-level national defense projects, you know, this is a thing that could disproportionately hit small businesses, Tom, who really need the cash flow, but aren't always providing those things that are 
at the top echelon of what the government needs to meet its missions. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to ask you about some figures that have come out from Bloomberg that you're reporting on, and they have kind of outlined the shape of the current spending in information technology and general government. And I guess we knew that the services portion was on the rise, but now they've delineated just how big services are as a component of federal spending. Tom, I thought that this was interesting. We haven't talked about this in the media for a while now. Ten years ago, there was, I think, much more steady tracking on what the percentage of federal IT spend was every year in proportion to total federal contract spending. So Bloomberg came out recently and said, look, when you look at the information technology spend and the professional services spend together, those two areas alone account for 26 percent of non-classified government spending every year. That's a significant part of the government acquisition budget. When you think about all the missiles, boats, and planes that the government buys every year, which are usually very large ticket items, to have professional services and IT come up to that level, that's pretty significant. What it really tells people is that professional services are indeed as ubiquitous as you might think they are. I've said before that government agencies can't go to war, can't process benefits checks, can't maintain their IT without contractors. These numbers underscore those types of things, Tom. I think maybe a potential surprise that there's so much being spent on IT in terms of modernization and also supporting projects that are already in place. Well, that gives contractors or would-be contractors a kind of roadmap of where the growth is. And I wonder what effect that phenomenon has on mergers and acquisitions. Well, we've certainly seen a lot of merger and acquisition activity in the IT and professional spaces lately, Tom. You never know in this marketplace, there's always a certain amount of activity. But I will tell you that the Allen Federal phone has started to ring much more often in the last 90 days from people who are looking for companies to buy, whether it's a company that has a certain contract vehicle or whether it's a company that's looking for somebody with a certain socioeconomic status. It's not empirical for sure, but we already have some decent M&A activity going on in the market that's being chronicled. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And I think people are looking at this for a couple of reasons. One, they certainly want to strike while the iron's hot and leverage relationships that the companies that they're looking at might have, because that's very important. But two, Tom, is I think some people might realize that we may very well be at or near the top in terms of annual federal contract spending for a little while. It's nice to think as a contractor that it goes continually up, but history shows that it does not. So one way to get some extra business now and protect yourself in any downtime is by consolidating resources. Although it makes it difficult, I think, to evaluate in some ways, because when you buy a services company, you're buying people, you're buying a body shop, and people are a lot more prone to coming and going and departing than if you buy a company that has a factory and machinery and a definitive product that you know is going to be in demand, something, you know, a piece of hard product. You raise an excellent point. I think you always have to be concerned as a buyer of a professional services company that you're going to have 
the main people, the critical core come with you when you buy it. And that's what any buyer wants to see. They want to see that the talent that they think they're getting is actually going to be part of the deal. But coming into these discussions now in federal is this whole discussion of doing away with non-compete agreements, which makes it easier for one person to leave one company and go somewhere else. It makes it harder for the company to say, yes, if you want you know, Jerry Jones to be part of the deal, we can make sure that Jerry you know, has a non-compete and that we raise his pay. So the likelihood that Jerry will say it will be good. And that's the type of stuff that used to always work. But now Jerry Jones has a lot more portability options. And that makes valuating professional companies much more risky. Uh, another way that people look at it, though, Tom, is by looking at existing contracts and existing projects, the size, scope, the likelihood of those being sustainable over some period of time, that's still going to stay there. And for companies that have that good install base and have the good relationships, they're still going to be very viable takeover targets. Did you use Jerry Jones as a made-up name because you're subliminally a fan of the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, absolutely not, because I just didn't want to use the name Dan Snyder. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Larry Allen, who is really Larry Allen, is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. (laughs) As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama 
And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that 
I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.